Hoopball Podcast listeners. Are you a fantasy expert and want to write or podcast for Hoopball? Do you have aspirations of covering a team? Are you a master of sales and want to earn some cash on the phones? Well, we've got good news. Hoopball's recruiting. If you think you have what it takes, hit us up at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or by emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Again, that's at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. The following is a Hoopball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to Monday's episode of Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. I am your host, Dan Bespris, and it has been a difficult couple of days in not necessarily the NBA community, but certainly large swaths of it, but across this country as a whole. And last week, I I, I did my very best, I think, to try to steer us into what, what I would call a distraction mode. But I'm realizing that as I open today's show, that in and of itself is probably not a fair stance to take. Because by ignoring, by using this podcast potentially as a means to ignore, we are, I am, say we, it's not the royal we, it's me. I'm deciding what goes out on this show. I am actually working against some of what needs to be done here. So what I will say at the beginning of the show today is to seek out information on what's going on and how you can help. Because there are always ways to help. And even if it's just something as simple as amplifying an important voice, take the time to do it. Take the time to understand what's going on and take the time to try to make things better. I'm not going to get into all the details because, frankly, I don't know them as well as a lot of folks out there on the streets know them right now. So follow those people if Twitter is your source. Read a newspaper. Watch a uh, if you can find one, an unbiased uh, report on what's going on. I mean, your best bet in some situations like this might actually be local, very local papers. You get that sort of on-the-street uh, look at what's going on. I know for me, personally, as someone who is based in Los Angeles, I am a bit surrounded by the things going on. And uh, you know, five miles to the west of me, there's been looting in Santa Monica following peaceful protests. There's been quite a bit in Mid-City here in Los Angeles. Uh, we're under curfew, and uh, it, it certainly changes the way things go. So it's a, a very weird 37th birthday for me today. This is uh, different, um, and I'm you know one thing that I'm trying to do on my birthday right now is you know I, it, it's been a, a difficult two and a half months with the COVID stuff going on, but perspective is a, a big deal. And I'm going to leave it relatively vague and intentionally vague because, you know, it's, you could sort of plant your flag in something, but to do so when maybe you don't have all of the information handy would be probably a disservice that I'd be doing. So again, I would say follow the right people, learn the right things, 
And uh, you guys you guys generally know what I mean by that at this point. If you've been listening to the podcast for a couple of years, you guys know where I stand on most of the issues. Um, one thing that I think you might be able to do that's kind of a simple one is, is reach out to uh, maybe someone that's been impacted by the, the concepts being protested right now. Racial injustice, police brutality, that sort of thing. Re- reach out to somebody you know that you think may have been impacted by this. Learn some stories if, if you're not someone that actually has been impacted directly. I know for me personally, I have the advantage of, um, you know, yes, I am Jewish, and that is uh, something that's been persecuted for a long, long time, but there's sort of an ability to kind of hide it if you needed to. Such is not the case when we're talking about racial injustice, things that can be seen with the naked eye. That That's not something about me that can be seen. So, you know, I, I've lived in places where I have hidden that fact about myself and i think it'd be worthwhile for all of us to talk to someone who can't who doesn't have that privilege uh and has to sort of walk that path so check it all out inform yourself spend some time today learning about what's going on and why this is happening as opposed to just thinking about how it is inconveniencing us which frankly it might be and you know what that's fine we can complain about that if you want but also please do try to understand why these things are happening I do still have a plan for today's show. Fear not. We're not going to abandon ship on today's podcast. I do think that to some degree it, it's not terrible to let our brains focus on other things for stretches during the day. It'd be very easy to just kind of go down the rabbit hole of reading Twitter posts and, and following news articles for 12, 14, 16 hours in a row. I don't know that that's actually a, a healthy thing for the brain. You, you sort of need to break up your day. So do the stuff we were talking about, and now, if you're going to pause and then unpause, we'll get into some fantasy topics today. Also, some NBA topics today that's on the docket. So we'll segue into that right now. Again, at Dan Baspers, if you want to follow me on Twitter. Um, I know it's, there's, there's other stuff going on. I'm really really trying not to tweet very much with the, the protests and the big, you know, <laughs> complexion, the, the seismic shift changing stuff going on in the world right now. I'd, I feel like my tweets would actually just be cluttering that up, but uh, would certainly wouldn't mind chatting with some of you guys if you have the time. Again, that's at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S on Twitter. As far as the NBA goes, there was a little bit of news this morning. Adrian Wojnarowski appeared on Get Up, which I think is just the funniest name for a show. <laughs> I don't know if it's... I, I don't watch it because... You know, I'm on the West Coast, so things are happening at weird hours. And he was quoted as saying that on Thursday of this week, the NBA Board of Governors is expected to overwhelmingly pass a resolution to bring the NBA back. And it sounds like they are moving towards a 22-team model, although the details, the specifics of which, are not completely ironed out yet. So I guess that that's... The, the projects today, tomorrow, and Wednesday before the vote. And we may have some significant NBA return-to-play information by the end of this week. So there are some positive mixed in with a lot of other stuff going on. And for better or worse, the world does continue. How do we, how do we want it to come back if there's 22 teams? Well, for one, we know that they wanted to get Zion back into the mix. So they're going to find a way to, to showcase him for a few games. I still really have no idea how they rebuild the schedule. Because there's going to be a few more games, right? These teams have to get to their regional TV contracts. I don't know how they're going to do it. I'm curious to see. At this point, we've had all this time to to 
discuss the potential returns, the different options, what do we do with our fantasy leagues, blah, 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 blah. At this point now, I've hit this threshold where, and I don't know if it's because there's so much other kind of, well, big stuff going on in the world that I just can't bring myself to care about the exact specifics. It's like, well, you know, they could come out and say, we're going to have every team play every other team uh, or we're going to have teams play weird in conference or we're going to rewrite conferences, <laughs> rewrite divisions. I don't care. I don't care what they end up doing if they decide to play four to seven regular season games or if they just go into some weird round robin playoff thing right from the outset, but some of them are, are listed as regular season games. I don't care what they choose if indeed this thing gets voted to pass, which, I mean, Woj doesn't get it wrong very often, and if he says, which he did, the quote is, Thursday will be the day of the vote, and it's expected to overwhelmingly pass. If he's right about that, then after that point, I don't care. You tell me when it's happening, and point me at the television, and I am set to go. Of course, if that's the case, our fantasy seasons are done, which we kind of figured, even when we talked about it last week, there was maybe like a 10% chance that fantasy leagues would have a chance to continue. That's basically dead now. I still believe, and I know there's this, listen, we live in the, 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 a time of instant gratification. This is the instant gratification era in the history of the world. We need things to occur immediately from the time they happen. We have on-demand everything right now. It would have been very easy Last week, when we were finding out that the the odds of them going to a 30-team format were extremely low, and then even lower, the odds of going to a 30-team format with all regular season games happening. I mean, what did we say there was? One in one in 10 chance of that? Probably less. I think we said one in 10, and it's probably more like one in 100 or one in 1,000. Almost no chance as of once we started to get these different return-to-play options on the table and we were hearing about which ones the the uh, Players Association and the leagues were favoring, and none of them was, let's bring everybody back and play the rest of the regular season. It would have been extremely easy in that moment to just say, okay, let's just pull the plug on our fantasy leagues right now. I, to this moment, to this moment of this podcast, I still don't regret the fact that we are waiting until word is official. If on Thursday, word becomes official that the regular season of the NBA will not happen, meaning they're going to create something new with eight teams missing, or hell, there's really only one way that you could continue your fantasy season. And the one way that that happens is if all 30 teams come back and they play out the entirety of the regular season. Any other option creates weird advantages and disadvantages that should not have been the case, and that's not fair for, if you want to call it like the fantasy competition committee at this point. That's the only way. The chances of that happening remain infinitesimally small and have shrunken basically every day since the league was shut down. First couple of weeks, I thought there's a chance. A few weeks after that, I thought, and then, you know, you get into the last few weeks here, And it's like, okay, there's almost no chance this is going to happen. But regardless, we've waited, which I think was the right decision. There was never a reason why we, as fantasy GMs or commissioners, had to make a decision before the NBA did. That's silly. 
Everything we do is based on what actually happens in the NBA. Why would we make a decision before they do? Well, now a decision is coming. And if on Thursday the decision is, which it sounds like, we're bringing back 22 teams, we're going to play a handful of games, four to nine games, and then roll into a weird playoff format with the regular 16 plus an additional six, or maybe of the additional six, two get into the playoffs or four get into the playoffs. I don't know. It doesn't matter. If on Thursday, that's what we find out, then we can finally make our final decisions on our fantasy leagues. At that point, we will have waited until the NBA made their decision. There was never any reason. I get it. If on Thursday they say, this is what we're doing, 22 teams playing a handful of games and then the playoffs, I get it. All of you guys can come at me and say, Dan, we could have paid out our leagues two months ago. Yeah, but, yeah, but, here's the thing. I always equate this to like getting a haircut or putting salt on your food. You can get a haircut and you can say, hey, take off half an inch. And they could do that and you could say, hmm, you know what, let's go a little bit shorter. And you go a little bit shorter. But you know what you can't do when you're getting a haircut? Hey, take off two inches. Oh, God, put some back on. You can't put it back on. And so that was always the, the reason that we waited. Because if we made a decision at the end of March to pull the plug on our fantasy leagues, and then the NBA decided to come back in a more full scenario. I mean, no one knew how this was going to shake out. This is a brand new, this was a global pandemic. This thing hasn't happened in almost any similar capacity in 100 years. We didn't know what was going to happen. If we pulled the plug on our fantasy leagues and then the league, came, the NBA league, actual one, came back, you're going to have a lot of people going, come on. You're going to have your, your second place team that got a smaller share say, come on, I wanted to play this out. I could have won my head to head. You're going to have a lot of roto leagues where people are going, hey, I was just about to get some healthy players back. I was just about to get uh, LaMarcus Aldridge and Jaron Jackson and, and Cat. I was, I was going to get these guys back. We took a week in, uh, if we took a month off. A lot of things would have happened if the league started back up in April or even May. And they played out the remaining five weeks. You would have crowned a champion in your league that probably didn't deserve it. So I remain completely fine. And frankly, I think we've done everything right from a commissioner standpoint. Because getting it right slowly is better than guessing early. And as it turns out, maybe getting it right, maybe getting it wrong. Probably more people are going to get it right. Because I think more people said pull the plug uh, as, as an initial move. That's probably going to end up being the right answer. But getting it right quickly when you have a higher chance to make a mistake, isn't necessarily better than getting it right a little bit down the line where we can make sure we've got all the bases covered. Because guess what? The end result is going to be the same. But we had an opportunity to, to make sure we were making the right call. We don't need to act that fast. Everybody wants to do everything so damn fast these days. We can wait. Now, how do we pull the plug? I've talked about this before. I think in Roto, you use averages. If you're in a games cap format, you make sure that you get averages because some teams are going to have used more games than others. You can wipe out the teams that had no chance if you want. If people come out really, really close, when you run the averages and add up their actual Roto points, you probably split pots of teams that are within a point or two of one another. Head-to-head, -head, 
uh, Brandon and I talked about it, not last week, but the week before, you can split it evenly among anybody in the playoffs or with a chance to make the playoffs, but that's probably not fair because if your league has a first-round bye, which most of mine do, those teams actually have a built-in advantage. They should get more money. If you're first or second place, and I'm not in first or second place in all of my head-to-head leagues, so don't say that I'm just saying this to try to earn myself a buck or two. Uh, I, I think I am in one of them, but I'm not in at least one other one. Those teams should get a larger share of the pie. It's not a break-even chance. If you're in sixth place right now, you have a lower probability to win your league than the team in first place. Sure, every league is different. The sixth-place team might have just gotten a healthy Victor Oladipo playing, or they might be the team with Cat, or they might be a team with someone else in the top chunk of players that was set to maybe come back for the fantasy playoffs. I get it. That might be different. But in general, the teams in first and second place in your league are the better teams for the regular season. They earned those buys in the first round. And even though it's never guaranteed that a first or second place team is going to win the league, I would say if you looked at every single head-to-head league across all of fantasy sports, you probably see more victories from the teams with a first-round buy. If you want to try to get that number, you can take a poll. Maybe I'll put a poll on Twitter and just find out. Hey, uh, tell me in the... uh, I'll put out a Twitter poll today, which is so completely tone-deaf with everything going on, but screw it, I'm going to do it, that says... In your most recent head-to-head league, what place going into the playoffs was the team that won the league? And I'll, I'll wager, and I have no idea what the actual number is going to be, but I will wager that the first or second place team is going to get a larger share than the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, whatever, if you break them down individually. Now, if you were going to do this in sort of an exponent kind of situation, if you're going to use straight statistics and assume everybody had the exact same probability, every every round was a coin flip, well, the coin flip becomes, well, the team in first place has to win two rounds to win. So heads, heads, whatever it is, odds of that happening are one in four. And a team in sixth place has to win three times. So theirs would have to go heads, heads, heads. That's one in eight. So if you want to give them one-eighth of the pot and give the first-place team a quarter of the pot, I'm actually fine with that. Or maybe the poll will give us some information. We'll break this down. We're going to try to get ready for Thursday because more than likely, it sounds like we're getting a partial NBA return. I mentioned on Friday that I had a couple of lists to go through. I want to go through the shorter of them today simply because it is such a crazy day after such a crazy weekend Tomorrow, we're going to be talking to Steve Vidovich, one of our good buddies of the show, cranking out amazing articles over at Hoopla. I'm going to make him talk about what he's working on, even if he doesn't want to. Uh, We'll talk about his lessons learned from a season gone by. That's on tomorrow's show. Wednesday, more than likely, we will break down the best free agent pickups all season long and how they surfaced so we can be better prepared to get those types of guys next year. By the way, spoiler alert, we had a lot of these guys this season because we watch a crap ton of basketball. But for today's show, the shorter list that I wanted to go through was a continuation of what we started on Friday. On Friday's show, we talked about the best picks in fantasy, so the best draft picks out of the entire player pool. And the names we came up with were Hassan Whiteside, Jason Tatum, Chris Paul, Kyle Lowry, Freddie Van Vliet, and Brandon Ingram. Because basically... 
we were comparing their ADPs to where they finished up. Hassan Whiteside's ADP was in the 70s. He finished at number 8. Jason Tatum, uh, 39, went to 12. Chris Paul, 36, went to 14. And by the way, it's not always about the exact number of slots you jump because it has to do with value. And as we've talked about before, there's a bigger bump between each player when you're talking about guys inside that top 30 and especially when you're talking about guys inside the top 15. Kyle Lowry was drafted near 56. He finished at 19. That was a big jump. Freddie Van Vliet, 88 to 25. And Brandon Ingram, right around 100. He finished at number 29. We talked about all about this in great, sometimes excruciating detail on Friday's show. Today's show, I have six honorable mentions for that list of best draft picks of the season. And because today is sort of a strange day to be uh, diving hard into fantasy, we'll keep our assessment on these players a little bit shorter than what we did on Friday. But I do want to make sure that we get to the information relevant. Player one on this list of six names is Chris Middleton, who surfaced as a kind of an unexpected boon, but not one that's all that crazy. If we think about it, if we think about it, he always fit the profile of someone that should have been a good draft pick this year. My hope with him, and I I was actually a little bit surprised that it turned out this way, I thought he would get drafted later. So Chris Middleton finished this season at number 22. His ADP was 44.7. Last year, looking at the numbers on Middleton, he was number 63. I thought for sure that's where he was going this year. And so we didn't end up with a ton of Chris Middletons on our rosters this season, and that ended up being uh, annoying. Because I thought he would, after a down season last year, he shot 44% last season, 18-6-4 with a steal, uh, decent free throw percentage, decent free throw number, a lot, of, a lot of decent stuff for Middleton last year, but certainly some room for him to grow. And that was one of the reasons that, he was a guy we we considered. What we saw this year was someone that figured out how to play alongside Giannis Antetokounmpo. We saw someone that figured out how to make it work. 21 points this season on 50% shooting. Shot volume didn't change much. 14.9 to 15.5. In fact, 15.5 was what he shot the previous year. When he scored 20 points a game, well, the extra shooting percentage helped him a little bit this year. 91% at the free throw line, which always was a room we expected to return. That was a number last year at 84% that was a career low for Chris. So we figured that one was on its way back. Rebound, assist, steals stayed exactly the same. His steals numbers have trended down a bit, although his minutes have also been trending down as uh, Milwaukee's had their eyes a, a bit more geared towards the playoffs. I think what you can expect from Middleton is probably something in between the last couple of seasons. He's going to be a very good foul shooter. High 80s, 91 this year. That was above the mark. 46% career shooter from the field. 50% this year. That might come back down towards 47, 48 next season. Minutes around 30. Don't expect to see that changing all that much as they, again, try to keep healthy for playoff runs. Uh, he's, his contract is fine, so you don't have to worry much about that. He's locked in to a particular role. This was about as good as it's going to get, though. 
right? He's a 50-40-90 guy this year. He missed 50-40-90 by probably hitting one shot over the course of the entire season. We talked about that when we broke down the Bucks. That type of stuff is pretty rare, especially from a guy who has decent volume and took six three-pointers a game. You know, it wasn't like he was just taking a couple. He was hitting a pretty good club. He's always been a good three-point shooter. He's 39% from out there for his career. This year, the, the big difference was that he was hitting all of his twos. He was just crushing it from inside the three-point line this season. That type of stuff does tend to fluctuate a little bit. Yeah, it helps. The Bucks have a great offense. He's the right guys around him. Figured there would be a little bit of a bump up with Malcolm Brogdon going elsewhere and the Bucks becoming really more of a three offensive player team as opposed to three and a half or four. But it, re- it wasn't so much in the usage that things changed for Middleton as the shots actually going in. Not, I really don't know where he's going to get drafted next year. It might be, I think if I had to guess, based on things we've seen historically, someone drafted near 45 that finishes near 22 is probably going to get drafted in the 30s next year. He's probably going to be a mid to late third round pick, and that's probably a pretty accurate place to take him. The guys in Milwaukee are not going to play every single game anymore. It's just not, there's no point. He's going to miss a few here and there because they want to keep healthy. Uh, he's a pretty, probably a pretty safe third-round pick. I love guys with percentages. You guys know that about me. And it's going to come down to who else is still on the board at that point. The honorable mention list for me has a lot of those uh, the buzzy guys that actually panned out because they fell into that second group of buzzy guys. And those three names, and we'll just knock them out in, in rapid-fire order here, were Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Demonis Sabonis, and Kelly Oubre Jr. The reason I'm knocking them out in that order is because that's exactly how they finished on Basketball Monster, 45, 46, and 47. Shea had an ADP of 67. Sabonis had an ADP of 74. And Oubre had an ADP of 76. Shea was not falling to 67 in most of my leagues, but he got relatively close to that mark. And he was a guy that we ended up with a couple of. Because, frankly, I was hoping he would stay in the 70s or 80s, and it just wasn't happening. So, bonus, it was kind of the same thing. I kept thinking, I saw that ADP of 76, and I kept thinking, or 74, I thought, all right, I can, I can get him in the, towards the end of the sixth round. Maybe he'll even follow me at the beginning of the seventh. He never did. And then Ubre, we got a few of, because he, of those three guys, was the most likely to fall towards 80 and fall just beyond his actual ADP. Here's my take on each of these guys individually. They were all obvious candidates for steps forward season over season. Shea moved to a new team where he was going to be playing a feature role as a starter, as a primary ball handler, as someone that was going to be tasked with a lot of things to do. Got off to a slow start, turned it on partway through the year, finished strong. Demonis Sabonis was always a contender to do a little bit more stuff. And as it turned out, his minutes trended up in a big, big way, probably more than we had anticipated. And they turned that into a pretty darn good season. Ubre, similar thing. He was maybe the easiest to call of all because we actually saw him do it ever so briefly in Phoenix the year before, before missing a little bit of time. So you knew he was going to have a nice role with that team. They wanted him there, and he ended up putting a lot of those pieces together. Why did we end up with more Ubres and Sabonises than Shays? Well, the reason we ended up with more Shays is because he was getting talked about more. He was getting more buzz 
from fantasy media going into the last draft season. His number was moving fast. His ADP was not 67 when the first ADP tracker was put out by Yahoo. It was in the 80s, and it was climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing. And when you see those numbers moving up like that, you know every week you get closer to draft day, he's going to be going at a pricier number. And at a certain point, you start to price yourself out a little bit. And that's what happened with me and Shay, is that he started to go so early that I thought, honestly, I haven't even really run the numbers on this yet. When he was going in the 70s and 80s, I thought, all right, we've got almost guaranteed built-in value here. As he started to go in the 60s, and I started to get worried he might even go in the 50s in some spots. By the way, he did. I thought, boy, we're wiping most of it out. Well, he actually exceeded that mark. So kudos. That was one of those situations where no matter how much buzz he got, it still wasn't enough. Those are pretty rare. That doesn't happen that often where a guy's ADP moves two, three rounds over the course of draft season because of fantasy buzz, and he still beats it. That happens really rarely, exceedingly rarely. Not only did he beat it, but he blew it out of the water because he also played in 63 of Oklahoma City's games, who so was healthy as well. Demontis Sabonis, he blew his out of the water, but he wasn't getting quite the same buzz as Shea, and neither was Kelly Oubre. Those two guys were getting some buzz as kind of this second tier of buzzy guys, hype train guys, we call them. But Sabonis, he was sneaking through a little bit. You could still get him in the late 60s, early 70s in a lot of spots. Same with Ubre. And so they didn't have their values completely obliterated. Where with Sabonis, you always knew looking at him, listen, he didn't have the greatest fantasy profile. Points, rebounds, assists, that's great. Some of the other stuff has been a little bit lacking. He needed to be on the floor more, and he got that. With Ubre, we knew he had a good fantasy game already. He can score, hit the three, he can rebound, both steals and blocks. A lot of good stuff going on there, so that was a pretty easy one to call as well. When these guys are going in that 75 range, the question you have to ask yourself is, what are the odds they finish above that versus what are the odds they finish below? And with Sabonis and Ubre, frankly, with all three, if that was the number you were talking about, with the number with all three was, okay, I think there's a chance Sabonis doesn't break 75, but odds are he will be above it. With Ubre. Maybe a slightly lower chance he stays above 75. Phoenix had a lot of options on the table this year. But I still didn't think you saw him going below that. Because even when things were going poorly for those two guys, they were still sitting in that 75 to 90 range. Which meant that there was all sorts of room out in front of that. A couple of hot weeks, they go top 30, top 40 for a few weeks during the season. And they wipe out that cold week. It's kind of the same analogy we used or uh, comparison for Hassan Whiteside, where it was like, okay, well, if things go awfully, he might lose to his ADP by one round. If things go well, he beats his ADP by at least three. And it ended up being six, basically. Five and a half, six for Whiteside. With these guys, you're thinking, okay, Sabonis, so there was almost no chance he was going to be a top 25 guy. When you don't have defensive stats, it becomes so hard to crack that upper crust even if you're quite good at two or three other things, it becomes incredibly difficult to crack that upper crust. So with Sabonis, you're thinking, okay, if things go poorly, he's probably a top 85, top 90 guy, and he's going in that 70 to 75 range. That would be a disappointment, but it wouldn't break the bank. If things go well, if he gets out on the floor and gets to play more minutes and has a more feature role, you could see him getting into that 50 range. So there was a 25 to 30 slot 
upside as opposed to more like a 10 to 15 slot downside. I'm picturing this almost like a sliding scale where you've got Demonis Sabonis' ADP marked on your scale at 74, and then the window into which you're expecting him to fall has sort of a lower barrier of 90 and an upper limit of something like, well, around where he finished, roughly 50. He was number 46. So let's say 50 to 90 is your window. 70 would be the midpoint. His ADP, anywhere beyond that, if you can get him anywhere beyond that exact spot, you have more opportunity for upside. And, by the way, that still doesn't tell the entire story of why he should have been taken in the early 70s. We have to, again, discuss the idea that as you move up the charts, it's harder to move spots. The space between 75 and 90 is smaller than the space between 75 and 15 the other way, which is 60. It's harder to move 15 slots forward than it is 15 slots backwards. So your sliding scale actually isn't fully accurate because it's not weighted by how hard it is to move forward. And this applies to all three of these guys. With Sabonis, it was probably 50 to 90, roughly, which if you weight it, if you do weighted on this, then the midpoint is actually more like 60 to 65. Because the 65th player, which was Buddy Heald this year, is basically a value out of zero. And if you get to 50, that's a difference of about seven one-hundredths. Which is the same, uh, well... Yeah, it's a it's a mixed bag. <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to do this on the fly. Because there's a, a pretty big jump when you get uh into that forty five range. Things get really hard to leap players at that point. So let's just for because this is hard math to do on air live, let's just say that the range was forty five to ninety, and so the midpoint would be in the high sixties, and any point beyond that is worth drafting. What about Kelly Oubre? Upper upper threshold for him was probably around 45 or 50 as well. Lower threshold was also probably around 90. And he was going later than Sabonis. That's an easy pick. SGA was hard to really... You had to do some serious number crunching to figure out what the upside was for him. And it was probably in that 30 to 35 range. That was the upper. But the lower was like 120, 130 if things didn't pan out or he ended up losing his job. So it was a much more volatile spot... And that's why he was one that I think we were a little bit more cautious. Jonas Valanciunas made my list of honorable mentions, although his jump was shorter. His ADP was 69. He finished at 49, so he was right in that same grouping with SGA, Sabonis, and Ubre. He was just getting drafted uh, closer to actually where Gilgis Alexander was. But I put him on this list because I thought that he was... I mean, we, how many we ended up with Valanciunas in tons of places. He was a uh, fantasy NBA Today target because we knew what he could do. I mean, he's a fantasy asset in about 20, 21 minutes a game, and Memphis, I mean, we didn't think they were going to give him 30, 32 minutes a game all season long, but you knew he was going to get 26, 27 range. It was almost guaranteed. We don't have to talk much about Saponis. He actually had a down year at the free throw line. It could have been even better for him. I thought his upside was top 30. 
in a perfect world. That's like if he that's if he played 30 minutes a game. But that was unlikely. But he was getting drafted in the mid to late 60s and he'd hit that number in 23 24 minutes a game. And that's assuming his free throw percent was better. I mean if his free throw percent was up into the mid to high 70s as I think we all pretty much expected it to be this year, even his current 26 minutes a game would have put him more in that top 43-42 range. That's all it would have taken. So great year for JV. Uh, Easy draft pick, and we'll reassess him going into next year. The final name on my list of honorable mentions, and this is, I don't know, maybe you guys are going to hate me on this one, but he finished up at number 59 after being drafted at, at 100, was TJ Warren. He was quietly one of the best picks in fantasy, and the reason he didn't make the top list is because, again, it's, it's easy to go from 100 to 60. It's very hard to go from 60 to 20. Really hard to go from 60 to 20. You're, you're making a cosmic leap at that point. 100 to 60, mm, not quite the same leap. Those guys are bunched in there pretty tight. But T.J. Warren was great this year. 19 points, 4 boards, 1.1 steals, 53% from the field, 81 at the free throw line, low turnovers. He did it a three-pointer, so that didn't really break the bank. Got you about half a block somehow in all of this, and just a terrific year that actually finished as strong as at any point all season. He actually looked like he was getting better as the season went on. And that one was honestly kind of an easy one. Which seems insane, but we had a few T.J. Warrens on our roster as well. I had him in in some of the deeper formats. Last 20 games, he was number 26. Shot 58% over that stretch. He was awesome. A perfect fit in Indiana. They needed his scoring on that team. Victor Oladipo's return didn't derail him, although, to be fair, Jeremy Lamb getting hurt may have played some role in kind of preserving his 33 minutes per game. But this was a guy that... In Phoenix, and and look, I'll go back a few years and have a mea culpa on T.J. Warren. If you go back some three or four years, he was one of those guys that wasn't getting it done in any of the peripheral categories. All right, like look back at his first couple seasons in the NBA, or even like two and change seasons back where he was at one steal, and it it was amazing. We were blown away that he was able to get to that point. He didn't look like a guy that was going to be getting many rebounds or steals. He looked like a guy, and honestly, he didn't look like a guy that was going to help you in free throw percent. His second year in the NBA, and again, this is not a great barometer, but he only played he played 23 minutes a game, so it was enough to get a pretty good idea of what he might become. He shot 50% from the field. That was the good news. The bad news was three rebounds in 23 minutes a game from a small forward power forward is not good. Less than an assist, because he, I mean, he still doesn't pass, really. 0.8 steals, which we, I didn't, we, we didn't really know how that was going to translate, but that was about a 1.2-ish clip per 36. Not great there, meaning you're going to need to get him 30-plus minutes to make that category palatable. And then, maybe most importantly, just 70% at the free throw line. Meanwhile, last two years, he's been an 81% foul shooter. Still doesn't rebound much, but four is a little easier to handle. He was getting five in Phoenix, moved to Indy, or uh, he was getting five in Phoenix the previous year when he was when he was healthy. 
Four in Indiana, not that unexpected because, you know, Demonis Sabonis is there. But 1.1 steals, 53% from the field this season. And he hit a three-pointer. He hit 1.8 last year. And from a good clip, 43% from three last season, 38% from three this year. He's turned himself into a percentages monster, which I think you guys are probably noticing a trend on my list of, of really great draft picks. A lot of these guys are guys that made leaps in percentages and help you in both. Chris Paul, good in both. Ingram was good in both this year somehow. Middleton, good in both. JV, generally good in both. TJ Warren, good in both. These categories, I mean, you could give Shea a nod in that one too. He was okay in both. Maybe maybe room for improvement in free throw percent. Point is, these are guys that are making leaps up the charts and might still not be fully appreciated because how much of their damage is done by being positive impact percentage guys. T.J. Warren has categories where he was clunky this year. He had clunky categories. I'm not. There's no denying that. I mean, if he if he didn't have clunky categories, he wouldn't be outside the top 50 with some of the good stuff we've talked about. Not rebounding that much from a medium to large guy and almost no assists. You know, 1.13s isn't good. It's usable. It's keep you afloat level, but it's not good. A lot of his damage is 53% medium to high volume from the field, super low turnovers, over 80% at the free throw line. 19 points. These guys are critical. You get guys that help you in both percentages? Late in a draft? He was drafted at 100. So he is one of my best picks, and I, I mean, he's a guy that I doubt people fully appreciate anyway. This is why I don't know that Chris Middleton, who finished at 22, does he potentially go that high? Well, I'm not fully, I don't fully know if he's going to shoot 50% again, but this is why these types of guys, even when they have big seasons, it doesn't change their draft position all that much. Other things do that. Big-time scoring, big-time threes, big-time assists. Everybody wants the things that are popping off the page. That's why Demonis Sabonis is probably going to get drafted before some of these other guys that are right next to him. Like, he probably gets drafted before JV, even though they basically had the same impact on your team. As his rebounds and assists were so juicy. So we just we need to make sure, and by the way, I'm not picking on any of those guys. They're all on my list of really great draft picks. Uh, the point I wanted to make here before we wrap things up on a, a slightly shorter show today is that we will always keep our eye out for these types of guys, the guys where the window, and the window for TJ Warren was that same kind of thing. I mean, you can look at his career marks, and it always, uh, the last three or four years now, he's profiled as a guy that can cruise into the top 75 if he has playing time. So when he was going at 100, the only impediment to him busting through that ADP was, was he going to play 24 minutes or was he going to play 30? Probably a top 100 guy in 24 minutes anyway, but played 32, clobbered it, top 60. Every minute he's on the floor, by the way, his value doesn't change quite the way that some of these other guys does because his is all tied up in volume. He needs volume. On Indiana, the volume was fairly well locked in. 
If he came off the bench, he probably would have gotten almost the same number of shots, just quicker. I don't know, though, it would have changed all that much. Probably lower steals. Tomorrow again, we'll talk to Steve Vidovich. Wednesday, we'll look at some of the best free agents grabbed over the course of this season. Again, folks, uh, do spend some time today looking around. Look around you. Let's learn some stuff. I am Dan Baspers. This is Fantasy NBA Today. We'll talk to you tomorrow. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.